Ten days later, in early September, the river had partially reopened, but the town was still deserted as I sat in my office reading Black Elk by Joe Jackson, a comprehensive new biography of the fabled Sioux medicine man. I was thinking of writing a review, though really my interest in the book was personal and not easily explained, having to do with a series of strange events that followed my mother's sudden death five years earlier almost to the day. To describe these events in any detail might disqualify me as a rational modern person, so suffice it to say that they involved wild birds, crows, and ravens, appearing to me both as symbols and as living creatures at critical moments of gloom and indecision. When I told friends about the visitations, they listened patiently enough, but only one, Sherman Alexie, the brilliant Native American fiction writer, noted their complex and often contradictory significance. After I spoke with him, I tracked down a copy of Black Elk Speaks, the 1932 oral history of the medicine man's life on the Great Plains, which includes an account of his childhood vision of the spirit world. I found the book embarrassingly meaningful. Embarrassingly, because I learned that John Nyhart, its white editor, had molded and embellished the story, some said, in order to appeal to dilettantes like me. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Thursday, December 15th. Happy birthday, Oliver. And this morning, we'll dig into the state of the world, both inner and outer, to see if inner states can actually manifest or sync with outer realities. And we'll do so with novelist Walter Kern. Walter Kern is the author of eight books and an e-book. His most recent is Blood Will Out, a memoir of his friendship with the con artist and murderer Clark Rockefeller. Some of his other books include Up in the Air and Thumbsucker, both of which have been made into feature films. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The New York Times Book Review, The New Republic, GQ, and Esquire, among other publications. More information about his books and work can be found on his website, WalterKern.com. It really is an honor to be hosting him today. How are you doing this morning, Walter? I'm doing very well. I'm surviving the Arctic blast. It's hitting Montana, and, uh, you know... Feeling, uh, feeling sort of contemplative as I do this time of year every year. So I'm happy to be talking with you about these, uh, these ideas and experiences. Well, so before we get into synchronicity, let's let's start with Trump because in some ways he typifies our new intellectual landscape where the individual is smarter than everyone else, and that truth, like real truth, must only be experienced by one's own eyes, mm-hmm. and that all news is kind of suspect with the idea of conspiracy quietly influencing reality. So you, I mean, the the thing that comes to mind is the guy self-investigating Comet Pizza with his guns. Mm-hmm. So you've worked for a number of media outlets. Can we trust him? Well, it's funny. I just wrote uh, two days ago a column for Harper's Magazine that I do every two months on this very, very subject. And so I've been thinking about it fairly intensely for the last few weeks. Can we trust them? Um, short answer, no. And, and that's not to be paranoid and conspiratorial. It's merely to say that in my experience, um, there are huge mm, divides 
between the agendas of various magazines, newspapers, websites, and so on, that, you know, the audience may be becoming more aware of as we become more sophisticated media consumers, uh, but which the audience might also be the victim of because uh, at a time when, you know, you're being flooded by information can be a little harder to be critical of it. So, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, they are very, uh, how can I put it, uh, uniform subcultures of, of belief. Um, and they have a way of approaching the world and uh, they have their own biases, as every you know, human institution does. Um, and, you know, if you move out sort of further toward what used to be called the fringe and, you know, the, the frankly conspiratorial and some sort of often right-wing sites, there, there you have a, a kind of, um, you know, feverish uh, attachment to um, upsetting news or, or, or anti-establishment uh, ideas, which can also, you know, lead to very sort of way out distorted uh, reporting or sometimes it's not even reporting. It's, it's, it's repeating uh, of things. You know, you mentioned Pizzagate in your question, the notion that comes from WikiLeaks that there is some kind of huge pedophile ring of Illuminati, you know, near Satanists, um, based out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. You know, uh, could you trust that? Well, if you dug deep into it and read the evidence for it, it, it was awfully slim in some ways and inferential. Uh, and uh, so you, you have to trust yourself, I guess, is the final answer on this. You, This is a world in which you have to be a critical reader. You have to be informed not just about the news, but about the sources for your news. Hopefully this... This will be a good thing, potentially, so that we'll look into – I mean, I guess that's – when when independent media condemns larger media organizations, they say corporate media, and so they're therefore are saying yeah. the corporate influence or you know Wall Street's message or whatever it is the advertisers are trying to accomplish. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope this doesn't mark me as a near kook, but there is an establishment in the country. You know, I remember the first time I went to to uh, Washington D.C. to uh, uh, report on a press story. I, I was I was uh, writing for the New York Times about a new editor of the New Republic in 1993, and so at that time the New Republic represented the sort of pinnacle of prestige, insider, uh, high grade political journalism in in Washington. Um, they called themselves the uh, in-flight publication of Air Force One. And hanging out there for a few days with a lot of these journalists who were on TV all the time, so on, and hearing uh, their off-the-record briefings with what were then incoming Clinton cabinet members and so on, I realized that the journalists and, and the politicians, their kids all went to the same private schools together. They spent more time with each other socially um, than you would have ever imagined. And they had a kind of natural bias toward continuity, um, consensus, 
protecting, uh, you know, protecting each other in some way. And I, and I saw that the journalists were in a way more devoted to keeping secrets for their sources, who were also their friends, colleagues, um, you know, associates, than they did to revealing them. That, in, that that kind of journalism was, a, was ultimately a relationship in which the press was close to its sources so that they could you know, use them in emergencies, but, but also sort of kept back from the public embarrassing news so as to maintain the relationship. Um, and uh, that was startling for me. It's nothing, it, it isn't worth making you cynical and driving you, you know, into the arms of the, uh, you know, far uh, end of independent journalism. But it, it does, it does reveal, I think, you know, and it did to me, that people who are in the same boat paddle together and uh, what's called the corporate media and, and the uh, you know, big concentrations of political power are in the same boat. They live together, party together, drink together, go to, you know, school their children together. Um, but, 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 but by the same token, being an outsider doesn't make you honest. Sometimes it makes you ignorant and sometimes it makes you um, hostile uh, without cause. So, you know, you have, it, it's time for a real revival of skepticism. You know, we're in a wilderness of information and, and uh, it, it's a wilderness with all sorts of creatures in it. And uh, you have to be knowledgeable yourself. You sort of have to have the skills of a, of a reporter to read. You know, you have to go, how is this sourced? Um, where does it come from? Uh and I think it's relevant to wonder who owns media outlets, you know. Washington Post is owned by one of the very few richest people on the planet and is in some ways a vanity publication that doesn't have to make money and gives him a foothold in Washington, um, Jeff Bezos. And, uh, you know, that that's fine, but it's important to know that, that you're not just listening to the voice of God you know, which a lot of these publications used to pose as. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I often think like the conspiracy folks might not be they're like they're sensing a metaphorical truth, but not necessarily the literal truth. And so they think there really yes. is. They're actually intuiting something real about, you know, there might not be a literal secret government, but what you described is kind of a secret government. Well, it, you know, it's what in the 60s they called the establishment or the system or the man. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, here's how I think of conspiracy theories. I think of them as folk tales, as folk literature. Um, they, like you say, they are often, quite often, you know, maybe most often, not literally true. But they express a... Uh, a sort of longing for order that often isn't there. I mean, conspiracy theories make pretty neat work of very complex phenomena yeah. um, and or phenomena that are hard to digest otherwise. You know, the Kennedy assassination is the great example. Um, how could history be changed 
this dynamic young president taken off the scene by a lone nutcase with a cheap rifle. That, that seems asymmetrical and nonsensical uh, to the pattern-seeking mind. And so, you know, immediately people went to work finding a villain whose uh, gravity was equal to the um, import of the, of the event. Of the, they went to find a cause seemed suitable to the effect. And so it was the mafia or a cell within the government or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of conspiracy theories are, are, are the mind trying to balance um, it's the perception of, of, of big effects uh, with some sort of organized cause for them. You know, the one thing that conspiracy theories consistently get wrong is the role of mm, uh, serendipity. Some would say randomness and so on. They like to believe that, that deliberate, all, all, all great actions result from deliberation um, and, and sort of the meeting of secret committees and so on. But, but, I, but I think your point is just that it also proceeds from a sense that you know, I'm not getting the whole story. And, and, you know, when you've got a gap in a story or, or you believe you have one, eh, you want to fill it in. That's the mind's uh, great instinct in every way. And they're often the result. And, and I find them interesting, like I, uh, like I say, as indicators of the mood of people, um, as, as sort of metaphors and folk tales, uh, and every once in a while, one kind of hits the jackpot, you know. <laughs> as you mentioned that, I, I often think that the universe, if we speak of it as an entity, has kind of this sense of humor that throws <laughs> these patterns or serendipity into these big events. And that in our current scientific materialistic type uh, mindset, where there has to be kind of this literal cause and effect thing that the only way to interpret those serendipities is that someone's orchestrating world events. Right. Yeah. My, 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 um, my skepticism about the conspiratorial mind, uh, basically flows from my, um, uh, sense that it overrates the, the role of intentional human action in affairs. Um, you know, uh, when it comes down to it, it's always a, a group of people um, behind the scenes who, you know, secretly meeting and creating an agenda which is then carried out. Well, I know how that works in my life, you know, the creating agendas and making plans, you know, who is the you know, maybe it was Burns, the Scottish poet said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. I, I think, you know, these conspirators uh, really aren't subject to the same vagaries and, 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 and interventions from the outside that I am. Uh, it doesn't sound plausible, finally, that, that, that you know, their best laid plans don't go awry when mine always do. Um, Okay, well, to change gears just a slight bit, when I was finishing your book, Blood Will Out, and you're actually meeting with Clark Rockefeller in prison after he's been convicted of murder, 
That's right. Yeah. 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 There's this disconnect between what's going on in reality, what you're experiencing, and what he is experiencing. I wonder... I wonder how you experience Trump sometimes when he is just unwilling to like the rest of the world has decided this is a fact and he is unwilling to did, did have you found any similarities between these two people or did you experience them at all similarly? Well, it's it's interesting. You know, Clark Rockefeller was a you know, was a sort of lonely uh geeky guy who had made up a splendid, uh, you know, Rockefeller persona for himself and, and was living it out like a kind of novel and himself as a character. And, it, you know, he knew what reality was and he knew exactly how to um, manipulate appearances, uh, you know, to, to hide it or whatever. People like Clark Rockefeller, con artists, imposters, it's often said they believe their own lies. Quite the opposite. They don't. Uh, they are assiduous manipulators of appearances. And if they believed their own lies, that would mean they became delusional and sloppy and they'd get caught. Now, Trump is a different, exa- a, a different creature for me. He's someone whose you know, bubble, whose little world of, of wealth and uh, power, I think, and combined with his aggressive, confrontational personality has made it possible for him to, um, I think, live in a parallel reality in many cases, you know, to, to uh, you know, uh, you know people who won't order what's on the menu, they have to change everything. And I don't think Trump feels he has to order off the menu of reality. He gets to, you know, substitute uh, ingredients and, and have it his way. He's probably lived a life in which people let him have it his way until something collapses, um, and then they meekly inform him. So I, I don't know. I don't. I think Trump is somebody who kind of believes his own untruths, as it were. I, I think he's lived in a little social microclimate uh, that, that allows him to do that. Hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know. It's a, it is the weirdest moment in American politics that I have ever remembered because, you know, whatever else you think, this guy is the walking antithesis of the deliberate um, sort of gradualist party system that we've, uh, that we've uh, you know, been used to. And, you know, he might just well be crazy. He's not part of the establishment. So if if anything, he's like part of a celebrity establishment, which might be like the new order. Yeah, and and he's part of a business establishment that doesn't really touch government. You know, we've had a lot. People say, oh, this secretary of state coming from Exxon. Well, people forget that the Republicans have been drawing their secretaries of state and defense from energy companies, uh, Rumsfeld was head of Alcoa, uh, you know, Cheney, uh, Halliburton, an oil service company. But, but a real estate salesman, a guy who sells condos and promotes hotels, and his job is really to put a kind of uh, you know, marketing face on a business. We've never had anything like this. And so, you know, I've got to say, as a human observer, um, 
taking away my political beliefs for a second. I'm fascinated. Uh, it's like a, um, you know, uh, Bigfoot walked into the zoo um, and you've never seen such a thing. You have no idea. Is it going to kill all the other animals? Is it going to, you know, what? So, yeah, in a novel, this would be really fun. Yeah. In real life, it's really kind of scary. Well, it, it is scary because change and discontinuity are scary. Um, you know, I, I told my daughter, who's 18 and a college student and was you know, a, a, an active Democrat on campus at Harvard, you know, who was just distraught after the election. I said, never underestimate the ability of the American establishment to sort of reformat itself uh, once it figures out the new rules. You know, and, and, and I kind of think that's what's going to happen here. I, I think the pressures of money, continuity, defense interests and so on uh, and, uh, and Wall Street finance are going to find a way to, you know, create a court around Trump that will make things more like they were than we imagine. You know, his personality and its disruptiveness may be misleading because the institutions are probably not as plastic, as moldable as some fear, hope. Well, as I was reading your Rockefeller book, I, I think synchronicity, if I were to venture a guess, plays a fairly large role in your life. Well, I mean, if, yes, absolutely. Oh, man. Um, it's the only thing I trust. And even when I distrust it, it uh, reminds me that, uh, that there's a structure to events um, that's out of my hands. Um, what's in my hands is to pay attention to it, um, to um, profit by it by getting on the right side of it, as it were. I mean, I've noticed in life that you can, you can be um, opposed and hostile and skeptical to synchronous events, and they sort of run over you. Or you can be properly attentive um, and kind of get, you know, in a right relationship with them. So I try to do the latter. Hmm. Well, a fun synchronicity that I experienced in that book is that you mentioned that when you were traveling to New York to pick or to drop off Shelby the dog, yeah, you were you were staying. You were going to go stay with Douglas Rushkoff, and he's somebody that the the program appreciates, and we've had on a couple times. So Doug's my Doug's my best friend. Um, going back to uh, age eighteen at college, um, I think. You know, uh, sitting up in the dorm till four in the morning with Doug uh, for years was as influential and intellectual experience as any I've ever had. Um, I, I love the guy personally, and uh, he's um, one of the quickest, most surprising, agile, knowledgeable thinkers I've ever met, you know. But then, so, the other interesting thing that came out of your Standing Rock speaks easy chair from harper's mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. what prompted you to start reading that bio was it i mean it seemed like for me that i wanted some way to connect with standing rock and that book was a nice 
way to enter that world and to have enough context to think about it meaningfully for me. Right. Well, what happened, I mean, because synchronicity can only be described in a narrative fashion, and that's how I see the world. You know, I see the world as a story, and, and uh, synchronicity as, as, as a place where the story sort of changes direction or, you know, is entered by forces larger than the, than the characters. And so what happened there was I was in New York, and a friend of mine had just gotten a job at Book Forum, a big, big uh, reviewing magazine, and asked me if I would please review a book for them. I used to do that all the time, review books. And I said, sure. And so she sent over five, and the only one that I was at all interested in was this uh, Standing Rock, I mean, uh, Black Elk biography. Mm-hmm. So I came back to Montana, and I was reading it, you know, next to my fire where I am now. And um, uh, I found out that the person who'd given it to me had been fired. Uh, so I was no longer going to write a review of it. Um, but I was already reading it. And I got to a passage about the death of Sitting Bull, the great Indian chief, uh, and his death then led to the Wounded Knee Massacre and so on. And I hadn't realized that he was on the Standing Rock Reservation when he was killed. And at the same time, Standing Rock, at literally the same day, was in the news uh, because some uh, police dogs had, had attacked protesters. And I thought, my Lord, you know, a hundred and whatever years ago, the same government basically uh, fomented the death of this great chief. And here they are attacking his descendants. And I live 500 miles away. What am I doing reading this book? Um, uh, I, I should get in my car and drive there. Uh, you can't just read about life sometimes. You have to enter it. And it, it sort of portal opened that day. So I, I literally got into the car that night and went out there with no plan to write about it necessarily, just a belief that, you know, my reading and, and my and the outside reality and my, my thoughts had converged to a point that seemed to demand I do something rather than just observe. And could you share a little bit about, you know, just the the flavor of that experience being there as history was swirling around you? Yeah. So, so I, you know, as I say in the column, I, I got in the car and I, I drove there and there was a sense of portent as I drove there. I almost hit a huge Raven that was feeding off some roadkill next to the highway that night. And, and crows have been a kind of avatar, uh, for me since my mother died. I, I, if I told you the uncanny um, encounters I've had with that bird uh, since that time of real deep grief and contemplation of meaning, uh, you'd think I was lying. I mean, um, but anyway, so I, I nearly hit one with my car that night. And I thought, oh, okay, keep going. <laughs> You're going deeper into something. I got the standing rock and here was an encampment of thousands of Native Americans uh, from all over the country and, and some from different parts of the world, uh, you know, Native peoples from New Zealand and so on, Maori. And though there were cars and buses there, there were a lot of teepees and sort of canvas lodges. And 
you know, I had never been immersed in uh, a sort of native, uh, miniature native society as I was there. And it was amazing. It wasn't just amazing in some burning man, neo-hippie way. What they were doing there mostly was singing, dancing, and praying uh, constantly for a um, uh, the outcome that they wished. And they were doing it on behalf of the spirits of nature and the great spirit. And, you know, it was less a political phenomenon than it was a kind of cultural, religious, spiritual um, gathering, and very intensely so. And suddenly I was away from the cell phone, away from the sort of, you know, uh, miscellany of tech uh, distracted modern life. And I was soaking up this other way of dealing with the universe, which was mystical, I guess you might say. Um, And as I was there for days, sleeping on the ground and, you know, eating and living with these folks, I, I, I saw that they had a wholly different notion of cause and effect, a wholly different notion of, uh, of the group. You know, there was suddenly a very traditional uh, sense of the elders eat first and sit in the middle of the circle. The, the children are, are sort of the, are in the care of the entire community. Uh, the way to get things done is to pray fervently about them. Um, they also had a different sense of time. They, they kept telling me this was the biggest gathering of natives and, and, and different tribes since the group that had fought Custer in you know, the 1870s. And they talked about the Custer battle as though it had happened yesterday. Um, and I realized that in their narrative of, of events, um, we were simply doing the next thing after, you know, the Plains Indians were basically, uh, you know, cornered and, and, uh, uh, you know, put down. And that really changed my sense of the world. I thought, wow, you know, here we are with our watches on thinking, you know, every minute in this linear fashion is bringing something new, but I'm at an event which, uh, the people around me think is the natural consequence of things that happened 150 years ago. And, and not only that, because of their storytelling uh, traditions, they, they had a very clear idea of what had happened 150 years ago. It wasn't in the remote past. It had happened to their great-great-grandfathers. Um, and uh, so it was a, it was a mind uh, altering and, um, intellectually humbling, uh, experience for me because I realized that, that, that the, the paradigm that I lived in, um, of, you know, very small sort of cause and effects leading to big things was, was, was just a, uh, an alternative, not, uh, not the essence of reality. It's interesting you refer to that as a paradigm because in terms of like scientific materialism back again, yeah. it definitely yeah. has taken the mystical and like unsold reality. Whereas mm-hmm. with the mystical viewpoint, you definitely have more of an, ins- everything is a part of a, a living cosmos. But 
the other really striking thing about Standing Rock is how prophecy ends up playing this role, whereas in in uh, Western reality, you, cause and effect, the, the idea of a new messiah becomes absurd, maybe on the screen as only a literary character, but in, you know, as, as something that cuts like a, a theophany where you actually have God breaking through in this literal uh, embodied way. It doesn't seem like something that could happen. You know, I wonder where Black Elk enters into this for you and then if like one of my thoughts is could his his uh, vision actually be the foundation for a new way of living you know that we could look to that to to uh for like another act of the, exper- the american experiment well here's the thing as i spent a few days there and in, in this different paradigm let's put it that way i started to see how well in adapted it was to our current crises. Um, You know, in a way, the biggest issue facing us right now is whether or not nature is, is, is being so terribly violated that our place in it is threatened. You know, are we so insulting the atmosphere and the planet that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be catastrophically out of balance. And here were people talking about um, living in concert with the great natural forces um, in a way that even scientists can't uh, quite articulate, but they articulated it naturally and, and, and I thought effectively. Also, you talk about prophecy. While there, I heard talk of prophecy constantly. You know, uh, Indian uh, native leaders would give speeches in the little um, common area there. And I would hear them constantly refer to events um, that they were aware of uh, in nature, you know, the birth of white buffalo and so on, that they felt uh, presaged a new age. And then finally, um, Dennis Banks, an American Indian leader, uh, you might call a radical from the seventies who led the wounded knee occupation in the early seventies got up and he said, this is our time now. This is the time we've waited for their time is over. And as though, you know, people had waited patiently for the fulfillment of, of various prophecies. And here it was, and it was being enacted before our eyes. And I thought, wow, this worldview now has put itself in direct competition with scientific materialism are they going to get squashed like a bug i mean is there even any uh, is this the don quixote tilting at windmills or or, or are they on to something and you know what they prevailed occupy wall street didn't prevail you know a lot of major protest movements come and go but most recently it seems they have prevailed and uh it was, you know, it was a David and Goliath contest, as far as I'm concerned, and 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 David, at least temporarily, won. So, if one of the uh, measures of of worldviews is whether they actually succeed, here was a success for one that had been humiliated and marginalized for so long, and the people themselves were aware that this 
represented a change, an inflection point in history. It was, it was very moving, to say the least. It was also somewhat convincing in some ways, um, because I thought, you know, they've, they've waited, uh, you know, out in the darkness, out in the cold, for a long time with no voice in the national um, debate. And yet here they have, by preserving their traditional um, uh, worldview, articulated a stance on the natural world and our relationship to it and the challenge of, of staying right with it. That, you know, climate scientists and all these policymakers really struggle with. Um, and uh, so it was amazing. Trump, or let's let's say this. So in the past, it seems like empires can and do co-opt ethnic messiahs or prophets and turn them into. Yeah. So I think of King Arthur or Jesus. Definitely, mm-hmm. they were kind of. Could you imagine a world where Black Elk becomes this more Christianized, white, almost white messiah? Well, you know, uh, Black Elk himself is, it's funny. I, I mean, there's a, among natives, there's a lot of skepticism about him, you know, and there's, I think, some uh, dismissal of the way that whites have, have already co-opted him, you know, as the kind of popular voice of Indian spirituality. Um, now, I don't think Trump, I, I think Trump probably exists on the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> you know, here's a guy who, who really thinks that, uh, you know, economic uh, exploitation of our resources to the maximum degree is the way to go. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I see a clash there. But but Standing Rock did... Um, uh, provide a megaphone, as it were, for, for this older uh, uh, point of view. And I think it's moved out through the culture already. I mean, there, you know, college students went there, uh, you know, celebrities got there. Uh, the, the, um, one of the things that I found really interesting there was how many of the leaders were saying, get on Facebook, get on the internet, get on Twitter, um, spread the word. And I think, in a weird way, the phenomena of Standing Rock uh, as a national, um, you know, uh, drama would not have been possible without social media. And I, I, I thought that was fascinating, um, that uh, a, a group perceived as traditional and living sort of in the pre-modern uh, past would fasten on a new technology as a way to, you know, remake their influence. Um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just this weird throwback thing, uh, Standing Rock. It was a, the, the meeting of a certain philosophy, a certain history um, with uh, the very latest technology. In Carl Jung's synchronicity, he actually has a patient that um, <clears throat> has a flock of birds that arises at these portentous moments of death for family members then later the the birds appear just before he dies i know that you have a relationship to crows and ravens you say what are the birds Mm -hmm. saying to you these days well let me just give a quick 
capsule story of how this happened for me. Um, after my mother died, I, she was not a religious woman, but I found a Bible in, uh, in her possessions that she'd been uh, writing in the margins of apparently for years and apparently had read four times through because she'd used four different pens to you know, create these uh, different successions of notes. And I decided to read it and look at her notes and write a little ebook about it. And uh, as I was doing that, uh, I would crows started landing around me. I, I'd walk out the door, and one would be standing in front of my door, not getting out of the way. I'd, a foot away, like what? You know, what are you doing? Um, they'd come close to me in all kinds of ways. And at one point, I'm reading the story of Noah. And, you know, we all know that there was a, a dove that came back to Noah's Ark, but we don't remember that he also sent off a raven um, uh, when he set out and, and this raven never came back. And so I thought, oh, and my mom had annotated it and talked about birds there. So I had already been experiencing this proximity, unusual proximity to ravens. And I, I put the Bible down on on my uh, table on my porch and went in to tell my wife, you know, I didn't know my mom was interested in ravens and I didn't know this Noah story. I've been seeing them everywhere. And as I was about to tell her this, we looked out the window and the Bible was sitting on my, uh, on my table on my porch and there was a crow standing on it. And I could barely articulate to my wife what was going on because I hadn't yet told her what I was going to tell her and we're looking out the window and there's a crow standing on this Bible and there's a song playing on the radio and uh, the lyrics are rock me mama like a wagon wheel etc I'd never heard it before I still haven't gotten out what I want to say and and the uh, disc jockey says and that was old crow medicine show playing you know wagon wheel and uh I, I was struck dumb. I, it was like a synchronicity uh, uh, bomb was going off around me. And, and ever since then, sort of at critical times when I'm trying to make a decision or, you know, thinking about my mother or thinking deep thoughts about, you know, the wider world and universe, here they are, you know. It's, I, I never noticed them before. In some ways, you know, some people say that's confirmation bias, you know, now you're sensitive to crows and you're seeing them everywhere. They were everywhere before you just didn't notice them. Well, that could be true too. But uh, what they seem to do for me, and, and, and it's been going on now for years, is affirm things. If I'm, if I'm thinking of doing something, a crow will land and I'll realize, you know, you should pursue that. And, uh, they just seem to show up like, um, you know, messengers or um, uh, reminders or uh, I can't account for it. I mean, well, I can account for it and I try to, but for anyone not experiencing it from the inside, it, it sounds a bit like madness. From the inside, it feels like order. That was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, you're welcome. You bet. You're welcome. You've been listening to Walter Kern on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about his books and work, check out his website, walterkern.com, to which we'll link. 
For more information about The Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio, and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and on my way home from the camp, I parked along the river's bank and watched it drag last spring's Montana snowmelt slowly south across the prairies. There was a crow, of course, yakking on a tree branch, grouchy, ornery. Crows are often considered tricksters, and in some legends, crows created the world. But now, it's all ours, not theirs. It belongs to us, the two-legged ones. I imagine this concerns them, as it should. This land is your land for you